0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel. And today I'm talking to Dr. Rachel Effie Quinn, who is the author of the book Being La Dominicana, Race and Identity in the Visual Culture of Santo Domingo, published by the University of Illinois Press. Dr. Quinn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Regan. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. I've really appreciated um, following your journey of publishing, of developing this project, and then the culmination of, of your publication of this book. And I wanted to start at, by asking you how you came to write this book, and could you tell us about yourself, you know, your background, any of uh, your interests, and what sparked your interest in this topic
2: Absolutely. Uh, I'm thinking about how we know each other from the context of University of Michigan. But certainly uh, that was where I was doing my Ph.D. in American studies. And certainly this project began much before that because of my own background as someone with a one white parent and one African parent. I was really curious about constructions of mixed race identity in the US. And then as a graduate student, I wanted to explore further, like other parts of the world and how I might learn from ideas about mixed race beyond the US to think about what's happening in the United States and how we talk about and think about race. And so my I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, in a pretty um, black uh, black-white community that was becoming more latinx and uh i i think in the context of my family you know i grew up as a brown person amongst mostly white people and white friends and so i had a lot of questions about race and around blackness and i went on as you know i encountered morrison in high school which certainly shaped my thinking and broadened my horizons around how one might use literature to theorize experiences of blackness. And I went on to study African-American studies at Wesleyan University. But at a moment when um, there was kind of a mixed-race movement and uh, students were engaging in the late 90s and kind of uh, conferencing and conversations about this mixed-race experience, particularly in the context of liberal arts, predominantly white liberal arts Colleges, and so I was part of that conversation, and had a lot of questions about why that was happening at that moment, and where I fit in relation to those, i the identities that folks were working to form, and I um, also brought, you know, to my studies like. A curiosity, an interest in anthropology. At that moment, I, so I minored in cultural anthropology, and I actually was raised by an anthropologist. I always say my mother's um, Naomi Arquin is a cultural, the late Naomi Arquin is a cultural anthropologist and psychological anthropologist, but of course that shaped how I engaged in the world. And um, saw you know differences across culture from having a Jewish American family on one side and then a Ghanaian family in mainly in Ghana on the other side. And so I was already experiencing from my own, you know, body positioned in these different spaces, being racialized as black in where I grew up in Durham, but then going to Ghana and spending time with family and being really categorized as white, you know, not not black like my Ghanaian family. And so these things, of course, shaped how I see the world and led me to ask questions about whether other people were experiencing, you know, being mixed race or being racially ambiguous in, in similar ways. And so, my my training uh, isn't actually in anthropology, uh, but my background in American studies was very much shaped by and influenced by transnational feminist scholars, and I had the opportunity to study with Chandra Mohanty and Beverly Guy-Sheftall, uh, and get this sort of framework for thinking about how I might work in community, um, you know, and connect with other feminist scholars, and so I decided to do my work uh, focused in the context of Santo Domingo and be very specific about what was happening in that context that might shape how Dominican women were thinking about their identities and the opportunity to spend time there really led me to see how much visual culture was shaping the lives of Dominican women and how they were talking about race was being shaped by transnational circulation of media so it's been a long time coming in this project and so there's certainly a lot of um, experiences that have informed how I think about race and then this time I've had to build this book um, helped me name some very specific things about mixed race that I'm excited to you know put out into the world to start further conversation.
1: Yeah, great.. And so I wanted to, I guess, ask a question about where you sort of left off in that answer, which was about how uh, visual culture and and the shaping of women's identity. And so one of the main questions I thought the book was asking was how racial malleability and visual culture shape women's identity formation in the Dominican Republic and in Santo Domingo in particular. And I'm going to quote you, you write on page 12 that Dominican women, quote, navigate the world shaped by the possibility of bodily transformation, unquote. And so I just wondered if you could tell us more about the argument that you were putting forward in the book. Mm
2: hmm. You know, the first my early experiences in the Dominican Republic were, you know, encountering, staying with a host family, encountering new people, seeing how I got kind of fit into the racial schema being na- in, labeled and named maybe India or um, in terms of a color hierarchy and so I I was interested in how, Vocal people were about racial difference as well. And I began to pay attention to the ways that people might be engaging in practices of transformation, whether it's shift, like changing how their hair looked, um, straightening their hair at the time in 2006 through kind of 2000. 12 was it was really you know that was the common practice to straighten one's hair it's that's not the case anymore there's much more natural hair but the practice of straightening was uh, moving one's body towards a more european aesthetic and um there was a sense that if you if you wanted to work in a bank, if you wanted to, ha- and that was the, always the reference, if you wanted to have this sort of middle-class job, that there were things that you would do to transform how you looked, that you couldn't do that with natural hair, and that your community would remark on those things. And so I saw those types of bodily transformations, even remarks of coming in from going to the beach, and people would say, oh, your your skin is darker now right, because as mixed race people, we often brown in the sun. Um, But but, uh, just a sense that there were ways that one might perform and shift identity. I don't think they're particularly unlike like a femme gender uh, performance and the ways that people engage in femininity and transformation and that it draws attention to one's body or conforms to certain ideals or helps one navigate certain contexts so i am thinking about race and its malleability in the book but it also end up you know pointing to gender identity in that as well and that these things intersect um, so I, I make several different kinds of arguments in the book to illustrate this, and I I think uh, talking about Rita Indiana in one of my chapters, it's really interesting to think about her as text and the work she's able to do beyond her incredible writing. Um, But more like the visual representations that she does and how we know her as a queer Dominican artist, but there are different aspects of her identity that highlighting them, you know, positions her as interpreted as more authentic or interpreted as more queer or more uh, Afro Dominican um and that there's some fluidity in that that's really interesting to me to explore Uh, and and that some of those things you can see whether watching a music video or in a magazine spread of how she's taking on and embodying particular gender identities uh or racial identities so I I give that range of examples I also give uh Michelle Rodriguez, I think, is an interesting example when you insert her into a film about uh, Minerva Mirabal, and I argue that we already bring an, a narrative about her queerness into the context, and when we're seeing the actress perform this particular character, that it changes how we read this. Uh, the character being a historical, an important historical figure in the Dominican Republic, and Minerva Mirabal being, you know, someone known for her fight against the dictatorship of Trujillo's dictatorship, but she ultimately was murdered by the regime. Before he was you know, ex- executed. So.
1: Mm-hmm. so, a common assumption. That people have usually in the United States about people from the Dominican Republic is that they don't identify as Black. But it seemed like you bring more complexity and nuance to this conversation by focusing on a range of racial identifications, as you just talked about, that Dominican women might develop. Um, And as you talked about, there's this transformation and kind of malleability going on that you that you bring to the fore. And so what I what interventions were you trying to make in the book uh and how did women identify with blackness and and mixedness that you spoke with?
2: Absolutely. I think, I mean, the, I think the challenge in, in saying, okay, I do work in Dominican studies is that there is absolutely no monolithic Dominican identity. So, but there's a limited number of scholars writing about the contemporary moment in the Dominican Republic to be able to convey what's happening on the ground that is, you know, changing and ha- and offer interpretations of the the cultural moment and the, the cultural media. And so I do think my book makes an intervention in a longstanding conversation around how Dominicans see themselves. And often that starts with this idea that they're somehow ignorant to uh, racial constructions of identity, when in fact, as you know, many scholars have explored, there's a long history of why Dominicans might construct their identity, particularly Dominican elite, uh, in opposition to a Haitian identity that is deemed black, but also particularly like African, you know, at its roots. And so, I've ha- also had the opportunity to work with Ruben Duran and um, creating. A documentary film similar spirit, where we look at some of the cultural tradition, African cultural traditions that exist in the Dominican Republic that are are very present. But I think the sense is that it's controversial to tell a different story about Dominican identity because the long-standing you know, narrative is that Dominicans are not that right; they're Dominican. But as you say, in in this looking at the visual, I'm able to point. To a lot of nuance in social construction of racial identity in the Dominican Republic and also hear directly from Dominican women of all different kinds of backgrounds about how they talk about and think about their racial identity. And what was highlighted for me was that those who had the opportunity to travel abroad had some of the similar experiences to what I knew to be true about how you're racialized differently in different contexts. And then also um, in my interviews, I was able to highlight the ways that you could be right there in Santo Domingo and have a very transnational experience because of the um, popular culture that you're consuming and the uh, popular goods that you have access to. And that, that might also influence how you think about your identity on the ground and so and dominican young women were reading uh texts, you know, they're reading Black feminism from throughout the diaspora and, and transnational feminist theory have been circulating for decades through the communities that I was talking with. And then they were forming racial identities and political identities in relation to that as well. So that there were plenty of people that I talked to who did claim a Black feminist identity or Afro-Dominican identity. Um, and then what I found particularly interesting was when I encountered People who I would not have read as Afro Dominicana. But what mattered was how they read themselves and what they had to say about their own identity, sometimes claiming Afro Caribeña, which, you know, as a way of thinking about their roots. And so I was coming into a racial context and trying to learn the nuances of that space. They were also trying to, you know, learn or interpret kind of through a dialogue what it was I was seeking to understand. And I I paid a lot of attention to where are the gaps? Like we might be seeing the same figure um, and um referring to them in different ways in terms of race and color and that hierarchies of color and being able to talk about those nuances really matters in a place that's 80 or 90 percent a mixed race of African descent uh, and there's still nevertheless a lot of privileges attributed to those who are deemed white in that context um, and there's different very different experiences so As I noted in my work, uh, as I noted in my work, fair-skinned Dominican women were having quite a different experience in Dominican society in Santo Domingo than dark-skinned Dominican women. And they're not necessarily being asked questions about that. So I had this opportunity to engage through interviews and through ethnographic work. And um, many said that that just the experience of having the conversation was really powerful for them as well. So, you know, thinking about the work that we do as ethnographers, is it goes beyond sort of gathering data. But having this interpersonal engagements is really powerful and particularly talking about race and mixed race, when there's a lot of ways that we're limited in the language that we have to talk about these experiences. Mm-hmm
1: yeah and the book was very much grounded in these lived experiences of Dominican women and i know i noticed in the book that dominican women have to navigate These stereotypes about them, as well as they have to navigate male dominance and patriarchy as a feature of life. And that also came out in your interviews and and your own experiences that you include in the book, as you have these various moments where men are reprimanding you about your appearance, sometimes about your hair. And so I wondered, what is this gender terrain that Dominican women have to navigate? And how did your own experiences play into your ability to discern these dynamics?
2: Thank you. I I saw... I certainly think we're navigating male dominance and patriarchy in the U.S. in many ways that uh, aren't as visible to us. And it's very overt in the context of Santo Domingo. And because it's so overt, it made it easier for me to have conversations with people about these things. I, I, I put myself into the text in a way that now that folks are, are reading the book, you know they're saying that there's a certain vulnerability that often ethnographers are hesi- either hesitant to include themselves in those ways. But, but it was one of the knowledges that I had about the experience of Dominican women, that being and living in that context for some time, consecutively over one year in 2010 into 2011, and then for various chunks of time, Uh, since then, I had this knowledge of what it was like to be embodied in that place and be a woman in that place, although not the same kind of knowledge that some of the very femme women that I interviewed or queer, queer women and their experiences versus heterosexual women in those contexts. But I thought it was important to include because it wasn't just what I was seeing. In the context of Santo Domingo that helped me understand the lived experiences of Dominican women, but it was also how I was being treated and the choices I was making around how to move through that very specific place and some of the overtness of the patriarchal culture uh, was something that I had to grow accustomed to and What it felt like to move in the space and groups of women was different from what it felt like if we had our male friends with us. So I was also just learning a lot through an embodied practice of being present in the place while making note of and observing the cultural context. So I think in the text that that comes across in in ways that might be different from how other scholars have approached ethnography or how some anthropologists have approached doing ethnography and writing about communities that we sit outside of. But what made it possible for me to navigate the place with those particular observations was that my skin color included me in the broader demographic in a particular way. And I'll say, you know, a lot a lot of the racial mixture in the context of Santo Domingo is West African and Eastern European, which is my racial background. And so when people saw me, they maybe could contextualize me as if I might've been a Dominican or Dominican from diaspora. And then as I note in the book, there's a lot of other nuances that folks were observing to help place me or see me, you know, in relationship to Santo Domingo. But it's a very transnational place. So why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't a a brown skin scholar be in that context, engaging with a transnational feminist community? Or why wouldn't, say, if I had been a Dominican, I encountered, you know, many Dominicans from the diaspora making a return to Santo Domingo. And so all of us were often in conversation about how we navigated very patriarchal spaces and how as women in the capital city. And so it was sort of like a, a very present conversation and engagement with being in that space. Uh, I also wanted to add, you know, shaping my work is Black women's writing and literature. And I will often think of uh, author Danzi Sena and her uh, book, symptomatic, which sort of, to me, is like a a response to Nella Larson's passing. And I use Nella Larson's passing in my text to help me theorize some of the ways of looking and seeing. But in Dan Senna's book, Symptomatic, you know, she says, her character says, my body, the lesson, right? And so that kind of idea of the ways that our, our bodies of color become this site of learning has stuck with me as a site for wrestling with and understanding how race works and plays out. And so I think it's there in my theoretical analysis of the different ways that Dominican women are talking about their identities and experiences.
1: Yeah. And I, I wanted to pick up on one thing you said about, well, you talk, just talked about wrestling with the patriarchal uh, dynamic that was ongoing in Santo Domingo. And you also talked a little bit ago about the transnational experience in the in the Dominican Republic itself. And I wanted to talk about it in the context of the chapter where you discuss this play performed there called La Casa de Bernarda Alba, or the House of Bernarda Alba. And this play is from another country, and it's from another time. It's from Spain, and it was published in the 1930s. And you write about how this Dominican women's theater group Dominicanizes the play and how it resonates in this contemporary time. And I was really just interested in this, in these transnational dynamics of gender that you bring out so beautifully in this chapter. And so how does this troupe put on the play and and why does it speak so powerfully to
0: the, to the then current gender
1: dynamics that you saw?
2: Um, since I saw the play in 2013. So after that period in which I was living in the Dominican Republic, but I got to know the director, Isabel Spencer, and I was paying close attention to the cultural productions happening in Santo Domingo and following her work on social media. And then I had the opportunity to return to Santo Domingo and see this powerful production. And there are many reasons why, as a cultural production, it interests me it is a famous play by Federico Garcia Lorca, and one that the women in Santo Domingo would have seen many times growing up in that context, in part because of the relationship that Santo Domingo has had to Spain and Spanish culture and how Dominicans have seen themselves. At one point, the Dominican Republic re-annexed themselves to Spain, right? In in this national history and the identity of Dominicanidad. So there's this pride in Spanish culture and the familiarity of that that the actresses take on in this performance. There's also the fact that Federico Garcia Lorca was a surrealist, writer and he was a queer writer and that was another interesting layer and not lost on the performers and directors as they put together the production but what I was interested in as I started to see images online of this production and also having seen the live performance were the ways that hierarchies of color might shape how we read the story and the performances on the stage. And so I do this reading of the text where I question what happens if you put brown bodies into this play that is known to be kind of quintessentially capture Spanish culture. And what I learned in interviewing Isabel Spencer was that one of her questions was the social positioning of women in in um Spanish society and how they were being really always being oriented towards competing with one another. In this case, I I argue that the color hierarchy and casting Bernarda, the matriarch in this story as a darker skinned Dominican woman tells the viewer something different about the power that Bernarda Alba is fighting for. You know, she's using violence and aggression to have power over over her daughters in this household um, with the interest of marrying marrying them off appropriately so that the family can maintain its wealth. But there's something about how, while we're watching the performance and then also how it's translated into uh, visual culture online, that we're also reading for hierarchies of color, that it matters and that the story has different meaning when um, the the daughter played by Cindy Galan, who plays Adela, an important character in the play, you know, it matters that she has this pale skin and bright red hair and how, what it might mean for Bernarda Alva, this dark-skinned mother, in her relationship to her fair-skinned daughter. And so the, the text brought about a whole other layer of questions, uh, including what Caribbean women's bodies might also already mean to a viewer. So it would depend on whether a Dominican viewer looking at this text or someone outside with narratives about... Dominican women's bodies, because there's some scenes in which the the actresses play into this performance of um, not quite the erotic on stage, but sort of a beckoning and inviting in. And the stage itself, as Garcia Lorca saw it, was created in in based on the technology of the camera obscura of the era, and ha- the like the new technology in photography. And so looking into this very white space, the play uh, does a lot of work around the theme of whiteness. And so there's kind of this double meaning that emerges in this play that is a theme that emerges throughout my research as well. And in the conversations I have with Dominican women about context-specific racial identity and the double meaning of different uh, symbols in the context of Santo Domingo. So and that's a lot to, to consider, but I, I'm at that point in the text to try to bring the le- reader along to really think about, you know, what the, the context-specific visual discourse and how then we can't just read the same, you know, play in this context of the Dominican Republic without understanding that Dominican audience members are gonna see something different in this performance. Um, and, and it also allowed me an opportunity to really explore surrealism through this play because of its author, and then think about how contemporary rendition of this play might speak to a moment in Santo Domingo under neoliberalism where surrealism, in my mind, is, is very present as not, not necessarily uh, artistic movement, so much as the artistic constructions, the cultural productions that are taking place resonate with these themes of death and this sort of internal consciousness and this and themes perhaps of resistance that are come across in Lorca's amazing work. <laughs>
1: So, I wanted to ask you, I guess, more about the visuals of the book and specifically about the cover of the book because I found the cover to be really just beautiful and very striking. And the cover art is by Lucia Mendez Rivas and it features a woman on the cover, the uh, what, or two women on the cover. One woman sits in the center, she's wearing a red dress and she kind of looks head on at the viewer and her hair is kind of stretched out horizontally on her head. And so I wondered, and that's just a brief description, but I wondered if you wanted, if you chose the cover art, how did you choose it and how does it speak to the themes or content of the book? Um, how, do you, how do you see it you know, resonating with, with your larger book?
2: I'm excited to talk about the cover. That was a good description that you offered. Um, so, I was really deliberate about trying to get the work of a Dominican artist who I know, I consider a friend in Santo Domingo. And so, I had been following Lucia's work over the years and had a chance to talk with her well during one of my visits in Santo Domingo and also visit her home and see some of her other work and her process for creating work and she does a lot of figures of women and she's also in her career wrestled with doing figures of Afro-Dominican women and shared with me around how they're received differently in the Dominican Republic versus uh, in Puerto Rico where she's had more opportunity to showcase her work at a gallery there and so I knew that I wanted to include her art and this was an opportunity to amplify cultural production on the ground in Santo Domingo. And so I asked uh, University of Illinois Press about possible images and the the cover does what I hoped it would do is that it does have this kind of direct gaze of this black woman. The hair is kind of incredible in the way that the designer Mia Amano was able to have it kind of pop out in front of the text and to me, hair is always a theme. I don't really dress it head on in my project. I see other scholars are thinking about that in the context of the Dominican Republic, but it it speaks to not only kind of these possibilities of transformation, but when I look at the cover, I think of like the emotionalness of Black hair or like how it embodies emotion. And um, I know from the artist, the ways that often she's creating these figures around different sacred um, moments in in Santo Domingo, where she's channeling some of the energies from the different saints and religious figures as as she's painting and constructing these images. So I don't know the full story behind this particular image called La Espera, or I would translate that as the, the weight as in waiting for something, but I thought that it was really important. It also, there's a candle on the image as well. I thought it was important to have this kind of representation from the context and also that people get to enjoy the book as an object as I think about cultural production, that this the book itself serves as its own work of art visually. So I hope that answers some of your question. Definitely,
1: definitely. And I guess, so the book, as you say, you talked about you interviewed um, Dominican women, and you also did these readings of different cultural texts and expressive culture. And it's it's an ethnography, and and like I said, you use various methods. And one of your methods that I wanted to bring up was photo elicitation. And I was particularly interested in your use of photos during these interviews to help you with people's responses, because I thought about using photos of people maybe with different racial phenotypes, and that struck me as a way to think about race and identity in a society that privileges racial malleability, or like racial indeterminacy, or you know variability in a way, because the photo, it seems to me, might help to add a certain you know fixity in a certain um, you know because it's a visual image um, and to elicit people's, you know, responses and and ideas. And so I wondered uh, who the women were, who you talked to and interviewed and how you use these photos to help with these conversations you were having. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: I felt like I was drawing on and experimenting with uh, tools from anthropology, and I found that in the context of Santo Domingo, it was very often that people were talking about color relationally, and they would say, oh, that person is a little darker than you, a little lighter than me. And so I wanted to really be as specific as I could in the context, in talking about Uh, race if I wanted to draw more information. And I I knew pretty quickly that we were not necessarily seeing the same thing. So I used an image of Marta Heredia, who won the Latin American Idol, thanks to all kinds of support. I think it was 2009 from all kinds of support texting in from Dominicans on the island and in diaspora. Um, She's a Dominican... Well, some identified her as Dominican York, but I think that was more her aesthetic, but she was, you know, diasporic and had the opportunities to move from from the island into the diaspora and back. And then I also used an image of Zoe Saldana and, and her image was actually uh, like quite present in, the, in Santo Domingo at that time. She was on advertising for perfume and uh, bu- at bus stops, I w- she would sort of turn up. I would see her in these different places. And then, of course, she had been recently in Avatar, and so people were familiar with her. And then I used Rita Indiana, who really was, you know, on the rise in 2010, playing concerts. Her music was throughout Santo Domingo. And then finally, I used Michelle Ricardo, my host sister, who I was staying with, suggested that I include her, sorry, Michelle Rodriguez. I interviewed an artist named Michelle Ricardo, but I, I used as an image of the American Dominican-American actress Michelle Rodriguez, because she actually happened to, in 2010, be in a cast in this film, um, and so... Her image was around, but I found that she wasn't as popular a figure and maybe more well-known in the diaspora than on the island. But amongst that those four then cultural producers, we could say, this, two were lighter-skinned than other, in the, um, which would be Michelle Rodriguez and Rita Indiana, were the lighter-skinned Dominicans. And then with Marta Heredia, and Zoe Saldana, I would say, I would say that they were clo- pretty close in color. However, when you start to talk about how they're understood in terms of class, they get racialized a little bit differently. And the terms used to talk about their color, like Zoe Saldana is known to be referred to as Tregeña, right? Which, you know, it's a, a lighter color. And I think it's attributed, it, she gets lightened because of her class. Um, and then with Rita Indiana, what I found was really interesting and in using that image, you know, people would describe the stereotypical Dominican woman It wouldn't, who wouldn't necessarily look like Rita Indiana, but then they would say, oh, no, but she's very authentic. And I would ask, why is that? And they would say, because of the music that she's producing, the sounds that she's including, including like Afro-Dominican uh, drumming and sounds. That she's mixing together the language that she's using, language maybe from La Calle, like in the streets, and how Dominicans actually talk. And so that like added to her authenticity as Dominicana, Dominicana. Um, however, she didn't necessarily fit the description aesthetically. And so, and then with um, Michelle Rodriguez, she was able to uh take on this role of Minerva Mirabal partly because she aesthetically like she does look like these historic photos of Minerva but then in other ways there was some sort of popular complaint about her being positioned into that role as not particularly a- authentic and I would say also because people recognized her as a queer figure playing this national heroine <laughs> So
1: in uh, grounding the in in the the theme of the book and looking at uh, Dominican women's experiences, and you know, you really ground the book in the stories and voices of these women, I would consider the book to be a feminist ethnography. And I wondered what feminist ethnography means to you and how you tried to convey this through the research and and the writing of the
0: book.
2: I think one of the challenges I had with the book was my own relationship to interdisciplinarity and trying to figure out the tools that I would use to tell this story in conversation with Dominican women and really highlight their voices. And I I I did have this opportunity to to take a class with Ruth Bihar who taught me about ethnography um, as a, a graduate student though I hadn't positioned myself in the anthropology program I actually now run a graduate program in anthropology and have am a, I am part of a generation of folks expanding you know the work being done in anthropology but my own Scholarship has been shaped in particular by Black feminist ethnography and the opportunities I've had to read and engage with Black feminist scholars in particular and how they did ethnography that might, um, that could not kind of make invisible our Black bodies in relation to the people that we were writing about and communities that we were a part of. So I would say, for me, in particular, uh, being deliberate about doing transnational feminist scholarship and making my cultural studies text include ethnography, I went into the context always attentive to power dynamics, and and I try to convey that in the book as well, so that other scholars and and students, you know, encountering this kind of work for the first time, might might always. Be thinking about and asking these questions about power that are really important to doing good feminist ethnography, in my opinion. So, and it and it's difficult to feel like, okay, there's a, a complicated legacy of anthropology that might make people assume that we're dropping into places, communities that are not our own, to write about someone different from us, and that that's the curiosity. But I have been very deliberate about thinking about my positionality and relationship to a transnational feminist network and conversation that exists. And so that is in the book. It's in other work that I am doing. I'm writing about Magali Peneda and her work as a Dominican feminist activist and you know these transnational networks that came well before my presence and other scholars in Santo Domingo the sharing of ideas across these networks and how we might be in these conversations. There's, you know, institutions that have long been building these relationships in Santo Domingo so that it's not as if these um, spaces are kind sort of contained in a vacuum, but that there's a lot of transnational intellectual engagement that this work is also a part of as opposed to a, maybe a more traditional idea of what ethnography has been, where people suggest that you're kind of like going in and spying on a community that's not your own. But I think also the work challenges people's ideas about the, like what, you know, this notion of a, some kind of authentic Dominican woman, the idea with the project is to always, throughout, I'm exploring this as a false construct, right? That there isn't one authentic, um, easy to sum up idea, but that there's some construction that everybody is engaged with and producing identities in relationship to, and it's important to uh, wrestle with that as well. And so I use that as a starting point, and it was Easy enough to start conversations from that place because people knew what I was talking about when I said La Dominicana as a construction, and then they knew their own realities and how it did or did not relate to that. And so I think the ways, you know, that I was pulling together different training and ethnography and in cultural studies to read that context were really effective for the co- kind of multi. Valent, let me try that again. I think I think there were so many different layers of what was happening on the ground in a very dynamic moment in Santo Domingo that it was really valuable for me to be able to use different kinds of tools in ethnographic research that included, or now in the work center, an analysis of visual culture, a uh, gathering information about the context beyond only what people were telling me, but and also being able to say, here's what I am seeing through the lens that I have, but it's shaped from a different racial context. And, and it's informed by all of these unique experiences.
1: Yeah, that was very, very well stated.
2: <laughs> oh, I've really wrestled with that. So thank you. Uh, I'm getting a little better each time at being able to talk about the nuances of the project, but it it is very layered and nuanced to talk about all of these, the intersections of all these kind of moving aspects of identity. So nothing is quite fixed. And so I refer to the project as essentially a snapshot.
1: Yeah, definitely. The dynamism definitely comes through in the book. The idea of constant relationality between you and your interlocutors and with each other and this attentiveness, the interdisciplinarity and the attentiveness to power definitely is is front and center in the book. And so we've come to the, I guess, last question. And so now that the book is out, uh, Being La Dominicana is out for us to read. Um, what, are, what are your what are you currently working on or what are your upcoming projects? Uh, what do you have on the, on the horizon that you're, that is, uh, you know, catching your attention now?
2: Yeah, many things. And I, you know, I've been engaged in doing digital humanities work that was very influenced by uh, Maria Cotera. I have been, I have a couple different projects. One I'm sort of wrapping up my role with the transnational Feminist Collective, South Asian Youth in Houston Unite, where we were doing a lot of community education and community building, but publishing resources online, uh, helping young people, South Asian young people in Houston, of which there are many, kind of publish their own writing and think about resources that they've needed as they articulate their own complex identities in here in Texas. And then I also have been working on a project bringing together scholars in Houston around Black migration and particularly Black LGBTQ plus migration in conversation with the local branch of the larger Black LGBT migrant project. And so those are two spaces where I've been doing a lot of thinking about collective work and digital archiving and publishing. But then I also worked with my colleague Leanne Zarno who does public history and digital humanities as well and we joint taught a class on gender and biography recently so that we could each have the opportunity to learn from one another her her work um, on writing biography I wanted to learn how she was teaching the practice and she was learning from me about my engagement in visual culture and so my intention is, and what I have started working on, is a next book on Philippa Schuyler, who has a large archive at the Schomburg. And much of that, or a portion of that archive, are visual images, a lot of photography. She is a mixed race, um, transnational subject. She was a child prodigy. And she, her mother was a white Texan, interestingly, but she very early was playing concert piano around the world. She died rather young, and when I was actually making decisions about my dissertation project, I found I encountered some of her like archival material about Philippa at University of Michigan and was thinking about starting that project then but I put it on the back burner and it's I still have an interest in writing about her particularly because I find her a complicated subject in her conservatism and her movements around the globe aligning with a lot of like imperialism of the mid-20th century Uh, her father was George Shuler the conservative black journalist and I've been thinking about the ways that one might tell Black women's stories, what gets included and what is left out. I was really inspired by um, Shanna Green Benjamin's *Half in Shadow: The Life and Legacy of Nellie McKay*, that I, I I read recently as a beautiful example of biography and what we're able to, how we wrestle with the gaps in the the narrative and what we're able to tell about Black women's lives. And so I want to kind of take this on as a challenge and I think the visual archive uh, necessarily related to Philippa's mixed race-ness you know will also be a really great opportunity for me to explore how she presented herself and how others interpreted her as she moved around the globe and it allows me to also you know have my work in conversation with an incredible array of scholars that are Black women feminist scholars who are writing Black feminist biography at this moment. So that, that's what I'm thinking about. I had recently also got to be at a National Women's Studies Association Zoom-in conversation with Jasmine Mitchell and Michelle Sturgis, talking mixed race transnationally. And, you know, I, what I was surprised by was that there, the conversation hasn't moved forward as much as I thought it would since I headed to graduate school and that there's a lot more for us to build on and bring people into talking about mixed race and and what that might mean, how it plays out. Particularly in the U.S., there's not a a broad body since the 1990s when a lot was published. There's certainly um, room for me to continue on thinking about that subject in this context and drawing in what I've learned by doing a project that is transnational. Well, that sounds really wonderful
1: and really generative. That project about the visual culture and Philippa Shiler sounds really exciting. So uh, I wish you the best on that that next journey. Thank you. Books are a journey. They, yes, definitely are. Well, I've been speaking with Rachel F.E. Quinn, the author of Being La Dominicana, Race and Identity in the Visual Culture of Santo Domingo, published by the University of Illinois Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing, with us, with it, sharing it with us on the podcast.
2: It's really been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Reagan.